You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Happy New Year and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards. And we now have a slightly different name for this podcast heading into the new year. It will now be called Stories from Real Life. I'm still Melvin E. Edwards, and I will remain your host. We decided to tweak the name because the word fantasies was causing confusion for some of our potential listeners. Whether you've been here since the first episode or this is the first time you've ever heard us, thank you for joining us today. We're going to start off the year with a bang. We're going to talk about a subject that I hope you will remember for this whole year. Our topic today is perspectives, second chances, and honest discussions. Now, I'm the direct descendant of enslaved Americans, and my guest today, Chris Buckley, is a former member of the Ku Klux Klan. I take racism seriously and personally. But even with that in mind, we're going to show you that you can still have an in-depth and honest discussion without any anger or rancor. Chris Buckley, thank you for agreeing to be my guest on the Stories from Real Life podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, the honor of, of inviting me onto the show to, to help shed some light on this growing problem that we have in this country today. All right. I'm looking forward to this, this conversation. I have so many questions. I, I have normal, I have lots of questions under everyday normal circumstances, but with this, I have bazillion is a, is a real term, but that's how many numbers, how many questions it feels like I've got. We're going to use it today. We're going to use, we're going to use it today. <laughs> so I'm probably going to need to divide this, this interview into two episodes because I've got so many questions and my plan is to release them both on January 2nd. So hopefully my audience will, will tune in to, to parts one and two of this conversation. So just to give you a little bit of introduction, Chris and I met in person in Austin recently during the screening of the documentary Refuge, which was largely about his journey from hate to acceptance of Muslims. Our common friend, Mary Beth Menes, is one of the executive producers of that film, and she invited us both to the screening. Now, Chris, I found you to be open, honest, and direct. So that's all I'm hoping for from you today. You got I'm it, seeking. All right, nice. So I'm not seeking controversy for its own sake, but because of the topic, there will be some controversial ideas that are discussed, even if they are in the past tense. So I just want to warn my audience of that. So first of all, my first question is, are there any topics that you consider off limits? Uh, and I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm pretty open and, uh, you know, transparent about, about everything. Uh, the, the one thing I, I really try not to talk about is, you know, the, the violent aspect of it. I mean, we, we all know what, what kind of, of, you know, MO these groups have. And I, I feel like the deeper conversation needs in this whole climate that, that we're having needs to be, how does this happen? Why does it happen? And how do we bring people back from it? And, you know, when we, I mean, there's, there's a million different things that we can watch documentaries, historical footage about just how violent and what kind of, of actions these groups took. Um, so I, I try not to talk about that as much. I mean, that's pretty common knowledge about, you know, just how, how vicious and, and, 
you know, violent these groups were. So, I mean, it's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's just that I feel like the conversation could be best served in other aspects of not the what, but the how and the why. And, okay. and yeah. Okay. So that's, that's what I plan to focus on. So if my questions get too close to the edge of what you're comfortable talking about, just, just let me know. I got you there. All right. So let's go. So you join, you signed up to join the military right after nine 11 to go and rid the world of Muslim extremists. Yet when you came back to the United States, you found yourself on several watch lists. Yeah. Did you consider yeah. yourself to be a, a domestic terrorist? At the time, no. Um, I, I think it's really important to put that into context. Um, so I come back from Afghanistan in March of 2009. And in May of 2009, I had a training accident where I broke my back. Um, I had lost a, a really close comrade overseas uh, in my arms. Uh, you know, there was, he was, he was killed in action. Um, and there was just a lot of hatred and anger that, that was, you know, swirling around inside. And then when you mix that with a substance abuse problem that ultimately came after I broke my back and, and was put on opiate pain pills, then you, you just kind of lose yourself in this kind of, it's like an ocean of hatred and anger and mental health issues and, and just all these things that really, they, they drive you into this, this miserable path of life. Um, at the time, no man, like, I, I had this idea, this warped idea that a lot of our, our our soldiers and veterans have that came back from that conflict that we defend the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And it's the and domestic that's a very gray area that's pretty much it's just like, well, if if I deem them a, a, a threat to democracy or the Constitution, then then they are. And, and it's just it's this really lucrative area. Right. It's all about wordplay and how you you, you you get what I'm saying? Like like anybody mm -hmm. can encourage somebody to believe that somebody else is the enemy. And it's the entire us versus them mentality that, that we see today. I mean, we see it all over the news, all over social media, whether it be the most recent conflict of Palestinians and Jews or the conflict between Ukraine and Russia or Democrats and Republicans or the right, the left. Yeah, I mean, like there's there's not one silo in this country that's not an us versus them mentality today. I, I absolutely agree with that. I actually wrote about that in one chapter of my book. So we'll have to talk about that at some point. For sure. Man. So my, did you seek out the KKK or did they recruit you? Oh, man, it was it was a combination of both, really. Um, so. After I come home and I, you know, started down the path of substance abuse, untreated mental health issues from combat, PTSD, anxiety, stress, depression, suicidality, um, there was just so much that I wasn't able to, to accomplish. And one of those, like, I mean, in just the sphere of, of living, um, I wasn't able to find a, a, a decent job with a livable wage mainly because I couldn't pass a drug test. Um, you know, I, when I say these things, I automatically take the accountability with it. Whereas before, before it was the us versus them, it was like, well, I can't find a good job because of all these immigrants. 
you know, and now it's like I couldn't find a good job because I couldn't pass a drug test. And when I could pass a drug test, I wasn't reliable to stay sober long enough to come to work every day. So, you know, you can't hold a job. You can't keep a job. You can't afford groceries and bills on the money that you're making. So you have to choose. And, you know, at the time I, you know, we had my son, he was four. We had just had my daughter. Uh, and I was just struggling man, like struggling so bad. And the crowd of people I was running with because of my substance abuse was, you know, the birds of a feather that flocked together. And, you know, my anger was very open and on the front page. Like people could just tell what I didn't, didn't approve of what I liked, what I didn't like, you know, it was, it was just very easy to read. So I had ended up meeting this guy that I used with. He was kind of a, a, a supplier of, of the drugs that I was using, which at that time had already elevated to methamphetamines, heroin, opiates, um, just about anything you could put in your body I was using. And I was using often and mixing. So, I mean, it was attempted suicide is what it was. But so I meet this guy and he's like, hey, look, man, I'm going to I'm going to give you a job on me and my dad's crew. Um, just don't come to work high, you know, we'll get high after we get there, but my dad doesn't need to see you high. Um, so we got to be in friends. And then I remember that Christmas, like bills were covered, but there, there just wasn't no Christmas, you know, and, and everybody got together that he knew and they got my kids school clothes, my son's school clothes, my daughter, new clothes, a couple of toys to put under the tree. And, you know, they got some groceries for the house, and I, that was the, the the beginning of their recruitment of me. But I was also seeking out this belonging, this this fraternity, this this brotherhood that I was missing from the military. Okay. Okay. Again, more questions. <laughs> more questions. So you you were on the FBI and on some white supremacist watch list. Was that Man, a source? I was on. I was on the ADL's watch list. I was on the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center's watch list. I was on the FBI watch list. I actually met since I started doing the the work that I do now to pull people out of hate groups and to bring people back into society and give them back to their families and. You know, the, the the I don't call it activism work because activism always leads to what, what we see today. It's like, well, the activist work in, you know, this and that always leads to some sort of, of, of violence, right? And so, like, I'm, I went to uh, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, ATAP, in uh, Philadelphia, and one of the ladies that was at that conference, which it was mostly FBI, CIA, uh, you know, law enforcement, guys like that. She walked up and I was at the I was watching the Braves game. I remember this like like yesterday. And she puts her hand on my shoulder and she goes, Mr. Buckley. And I turned around and it was uh, it was a black woman. And she was like, you probably don't remember me. And I was like, I have no idea who you are. She was like. Your name has been on my desk several times, several. Mm. And uh, I just want you to know that I'm very proud of the changes that you've made and, and the accountability. And, and, and so that was that was a really clear indicator that the work that I'm doing is actually meaningful now. 
it's it's taking root. It's it's helping those in need, and I'm not taking away from society. You know what I mean? So that like I mean I I I I've been on every watch list you can imagine, and and I'm not proud of that by any means, but. I think it's important to to contrast that with where I'm at now, you know, and that gives a lot of hope to people who might be dealing with somebody who's uh, uh, an extremist or an addict or both. And, you know, like they do recover and, and there is a, a, a value to the to these these folks that, that are dealing with this. All right. So early in the documentary Refuge, you seem to be willing to give up your prejudices, all your prejudices, except against Muslims. Uh, so my question here is, wait, let, let, me, let me ask the question first. Did you really join the Klan because your best friend was killed by Muslims in the Middle East War? Or was that just an easier story to tell yourself? No, I think that I think there was a lot of things that, that kind of led me into that. And, and that in the documentary, it was just, it was part of the narrative that, that needed to be told for that documentary to make sense. There were a lot of reasons why I joined the, the, the KKK. Um, I would say, you know, my hatred for, for homosexuals and the LGBTQ community at the time was like top notch above everything. And the reason for that I, I think was because of the molestation that I faced when I was a kid. Like I was, I was molested by a same sex family member for since I can remember probably five till 11 or 12. And I just, I, it was an, a, an injury that I carried with me and the developmental issues around that were all of these people are doing the same things because this is what happened to me. And, and one of the things that we see is like real and perceived grievances. And sometimes we discount the perceived grievance because it's like, oh, well, they just perceive that that happened. But that doesn't make it any any less real than the real grievance, right? It's still very volatile in their mind. Um, I watched my dad. Uh, he, he was very violent um, towards others physically, but towards us emotionally and verbally and and just like he was dealing with substance abuse problems so i couldn't stand this idea not to mention my dad had had harbored some racist ideas himself um so that was always in the back of my mind and i think that the need for belonging the need for the the, the compensation of the hate and the anger mixed with the substance abuse and, and all of these other things that were going on in my life, it just kind of led me down that path. And, you know, I, I get this question a lot and I don't mean to steal a question from you, but like a lot of people will ask me, they'll be like, well, why did it happen to you and not all the other people that it's happened to? Why did they not make the same decisions to go into hate and, and extremism? And the only real like comparison I can give is like if you were to take a, a room full of like 100 people and give each one of them a line of cocaine, 20 people would continue to seek out that cocaine. The other 80 people would be like, well, that was fun. All right, let's go home. Right. 
And it's the same thing with addiction. There's this real addiction to extremism and hate. It gives you a sense of purpose, a sense of power when you have no control over anything in your life, but you feel like you have control over something else. And I, that, and I think that, that there's not one, one main point that leads us into extremism. It's like build, it's like baking cookies. <laughs> Lots of ingredients. <laughs> yeah. It takes all the ingredients. And then if you get all the ingredients, right, you still got to have just the right temperature in the oven or you'll just end up with dough. Okay. All right. So this question is a little bit closer to home for you. So in the documentary, your wife mentioned having some mixed race relatives. How did you feel about them while you were in the KKK? Man, I don't, I don't recollect ever really meeting them. I mean, I know that's not here nor there, but it was more, I, I think, looking back on it, I didn't really have anybody in my life that could that could kind of push back on the narratives that I was being, that I was building in my mind, right? And when you look at, like, the documentary and you see, like, these relationships starting to form, like, those are the... Those are the change that, that needed to happen. The, 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 the facing the idea that you had, realizing that it was not true, and then kind of being left with that cognitive opening of like, okay, so this is all bullshit. How do I move forward in this and, and kind of repair the harm that I've done? And you know, like had those people and, and these are all hypotheticals because I mean, it's in the past and we can't go back and change the past. We could just try to understand right. it a little bit. And had I maybe, maybe if I had had interactions and been with these people throughout the course, that might've been a counterbalance to this idea that I had in my mind that was growing. Okay. So your wife also, she gave you an ultimatum and you made the good choice of choosing your family over the clan. Did you resent being forced to, to choose? Not at all, man. Um, I, I actually look back on that and I, I realized that it was, it was the, this is an oxymoron, but it was the hardest, easiest decision that I've ever had to make. Right. The hardest being that I had allowed myself to get to a point where this even had to be uh, an ultimatum. The easiest was like, yeah, there's no brainer in choosing your family over anything. Right. Um, that decision was more reflective harm on me. Like, like I focused more on what I did to get to this point than why I had to make this decision. You know, I, I think that I didn't resent having to make the decision. I resented the fact I resented myself. Honestly, like, like let's just cut through the, the, like that. It was me. I had, I had full loathing and resentment towards myself. All right. So when you see, 
Like what, what goes through your mind today when you see a Confederate flag? I just, I, I know, like, so, so I'm a very big Civil War history buff, right? Like, I've been to almost all of the Civil War battlefields except for Gettysburg, right? And from and being from Georgia, I've been to Andersonville. I've been to the Chickamauga battlefield. We've went up into Kentucky. And so, I mean, like, and I actually followed that, that, that battle. Like, it's something that I enjoy. Um, I know what a battle flag is, but I also know about the history after how the Ku Klux Klan was formed, where it was formed. The symbolization of that Confederate battle flag to mean something else. And when I see it today, I, I, I'm almost just as confused as I am angry, right? Because it's like, you see this flag and you hear people say, well, this is my heritage, it was a four-year stint. Like, that does not constitute heritage by any means. Okay? So when when you see the people and they're like, oh, I'm just flying it because of this, and it's like, and they're all, anytime you have a, a conversation with one of these people, you really get the sense of just where they're at. And it's like, they're always way above the level that they say they're at. And it's well, I don't like them gays and, and you know, and I, I really I don't I don't like them, them, them Jews. And and it's like so you're openly flying the flag as a smack in the face to every other member of, of the country. Right. Like I, I just I feel it's, it's super harmful to fly it. But I think that rather than outlawing or banning something like we need to have these hard conversations and we need to, you know, you can't just point the finger and be like, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're right. You're wrong. And because that just breeds more, that does more to grow these anti whatever groups than it does to dissolve them and to bring them back into the fold of society. Right. Because now they're victimized. They're like, see, they just want to take away our freedoms and blah, blah, blah. And, mm, okay. and, and you get into these, these weeds of it's like it's not that we want to take them away. We just don't want people that don't want to see them to have to look at them. You know, um, so, I mean, it's as a as as a constitutionalist, I understand people's right to do it. Right. And it's easy to say you have the right to do something that I agree with. Yes, absolutely. But the Constitution's also there to keep people in check and say, even though I don't like your right to do it, you have the right to do it. Right. And, and to be uncomfortable, with that, you know, and to be like, I don't like it. I hate it. I don't want to see it. But I understand that that you have that freedom and that right. You touched on this a little bit earlier. Do you do you think that hate is an addiction, like like I, drugs, in, in the same kind of way drugs and alcohol are? So I've done a lot of research. Um, I've taken some some pretty serious, uh, lengthy courses with Basil Vanderkolk, who's like the leading trauma clinician in like the world, right? Uh, I've done some studies with uh, Dr. Kimmel out of Yale. And at first it was just an idea that I had, like, can I be addicted to hate the same way I'm addicted to substances? Well, 
in the early onslaught of that, the answers were usually pretty generic. Like, well, I don't know. Well, maybe. Uh, no, that can't happen. So I remember while I was in treatment, uh, we, we had this list of like red flags that somebody was, you know, falling into addiction or becoming involved in, in substance abuse. And I took that list and I was like, what of these, li- what of these, this list did I exhibit when I was falling into extremism? So I had my wife, I got in touch with some people that were really close to me and they were like, oh yeah, this, this, this. this. So the lists almost mirrored themselves. And at that point, I took the titles off of the list and I took them back because I still have a really good working relationship with the counselors and the probation department and everybody that I went through. And I was like, hey, can you tell me which of these lists are different? And she looked at them for a minute and she was like, this one's missing one or two, but they're essentially the same list. Like, what do you want me to pick out? So at that Mm. point... I have this obligation because, you know, we hear so much in society right now about trust the science, right? Well, part of science is forming an idea, challenging that idea any way you can to come up with a debunk. So I did that. I did that. And I did this class with Basil Vanderkolk, and I started to learn about the trauma-affected brain. And part of the, the, the central reptilian part of our brain that's affected by trauma are like your prefrontal cortex, like your watchtower, right? Your ears, eyes, nose, mouth, the things that tell you, Hey, there's danger around. But then there's that involuntary response that we have that our prefrontal cortex reports to. That would be like the troops, right? Like you have the alarm and then you have the troops that react. So that central part of our brain is composed of parts like the amygdala, the hippocampus, the nucleus accumbent, and and some other parts of the brain there that kind of react to, to, to fear and trauma. The funny thing is that those same parts of the brain that are affected by trauma are also affected by substance abuse, right? And we couldn't prove this at the time, but then enter James Kimmel who has the scans from the brain that shows a substance-addicted brain when they're triggered by substance use, as well as a scan of a brain when they're triggered by a trauma response. So when we look at these, like there's a lot of highlight in the same parts of the brain. There's highlight in different areas, but the main source of the highlight is in that center, you know, reptilian area of our brain. So the theory after was yes, you can become addicted to the feelings and the re- responses of hate and extremism the same way you can substance abuse. And, and with that, we're now in the hypothesis that, that I'm, I'm working on with the trauma recovery program that if you can become addicted to it, then by default, we should be able to treat the addictions – in the same manner through like moral cognitive inner reflective kind of, of, you know, education and, and curriculum. So is the person always the, the person who's an addict, let's say for the sake addict in quotation marks, are they always at risk of relapsing? So I think that just like every person is unique. Their risk 
and their likelihood of relapse are unique as well. I, I've dealt with a million addicts. As, as a recovering addict myself, I, I, I still continue to do a lot of work in the field of addiction. And I hear a lot of addicts that get into this canned response of addiction. And it's like, you got to keep working the program. You're never going to be a recovered addict. You'll always be sick with the disease. And, and to me, my response to that is, is pretty unique. A lot of the, the counselors are like, I don't like the way you respond to that. And my response to them is, I don't care what your opinion is. Right? Um, it doesn't affect me whatsoever. But what I try to respond with is, do you see the person that beat cancer, which is a disease, right? It's progressive unless arrested. It becomes fatal. It is a disease. Do you see the person with diabetes? Do you see the person with any disease that, that's out there today? AIDS, right? Do you ever see them say, well, I'm beating cancer. I'm beating AIDS. They do when they're fighting and they're working towards recovery. But once they recovered, the, the, the conversation's a lot different. I beat cancer. I beat AIDS. I, I got my sugar under control. I got my A1C down, and now I'm living a normal life. I beat that shit. So that's the conversation that we need to have. As a recovering addict, I still, five years later, I'm, October was my five-year mark. I still am very aware of what my triggers are, right? But I'm also aware that I have the choice in that moment to make that decision. And when I choose to not put myself around those people, those places, or those things, and challenge the belief in the narrative that I've constructed, even more so, positive, healthy growth occurs. So, and that's the, that's the path that I take with extremists. Hey, you're, you're always going to be aware of what your triggers are. But just because they're a trigger doesn't mean that you you absolve yourself of the responsibility to challenge the narrative that you've built for yourself to grow and to progress in your recovery to a point where you can someday look back and be like, you know, I used to be that guy. I used to hate this and these and those and and everything under the sun. But today, today, my life is full and complete. And it's not because of living in this idea that I'm never going to be able to recover from this. I'm always going to be the victim. I'm always going to be the bad person in somebody's story. I get to choose the next book, the next chapter, the next word in the story that I'm writing. And, and when we take accountability and ownership of that, our lives change exponentially. All right. <laughs> Next couple of questions are, are a little more personal and direct towards you. And I'm not going to ask anything about um, the kinds of things that were done because we talked about that at the beginning. But I've, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever woken up in the middle of the night, say, just in a cold sweat and thinking about things that you might have done or thought. Oh, man, I still. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the amount of. 
I'm trying to look for the right word here, but I mean, like, I, I'm really hard on myself. And, you know, some of your listeners are going to be like, good, you racist, you ought to be. And, and I get, I get, you know, like, like I mean, um, the amount of pain that I've put into the world can never be taken back. It can never be removed. Right? Like, once you, it, words are like a bullet. Once that bullet leaves the barrel of that gun, it's going where it's going, and it's going to hurt who it hurts. And and there's no amount of sorrow or or regret that can bring that bullet back and put it back into the gun and change the outcome of what you did. Um, I see the the people that I work with today, the 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 people who are involved in white supremacy or extremism from Islamism or fundamentalism or eco-terrorism, Antifa, like all these groups that are, are borderline extremist groups, which I'm not going to call them borderline. As a subject matter expert, I'm going to call them extremist groups, right? Um, I see me. Right. So so with every individual case that I'm working on, I'm seeing a version of myself and to look at that and to work with that. Like there was a there was a period when I got out of like extreme suicidality, like I, I wanted to kill myself and I went through this long period where I didn't think that I was worth the work that people were were encouraging of me. I did, I thought that like the world, my family, everybody would be better off if I was gone. And it's still to this day, man, to this day, I get into a place like, uh, like depression and, and shit is real. Right. And just knowing that, that that smudge is always going to be on your legacy is mm, heartbreaking. Right. Like it's heartbreaking. And like people are like, oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of the work that you're doing. And it's like, I'm not right. Like I'm, I'm disgusted with myself sometimes because if I hadn't have been in that position, I wouldn't be doing this work. Right. So, I mean, like, yeah, there's, there's nights where, you know, I'm a big fan of jelly roll, right. The singer, and like his music has helped me through a lot. And, and one of the verses that come to mind when you ask that question was it's three in the morning. I'm sitting here with a gun to my head. My demons are roaring. They're bothering me. Right. Wow. And, and my demons roar a lot, you know, and, and they're always attacking me. And, and, and every time I look in the mirror, rather than see what I've accomplished, I can only see what I've done. You know, and that's that's something I have to live with, you know, and and I just I've made the decision that I don't want anybody else to ever have to deal with that, at least not for the reasons that I did. And if I can do something to change that, then that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. All right. So how are you doing today? How are you doing? I'm I'm well, man. Like, uh, I mean. I've, I've gotten into therapy. I've, I've started to, to work my own mental health journey. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm blessed that, uh, you know, the, the people that I have around me that, that, you know, have that skill set to help me. Um, you know, obviously my wife and my kids are, are a big motivation, but you know, I have, I have other friends and comrades, like, you know, a, a colleague of mine, Pardeep Kalika, who's a, a trauma clinician. And, you know, we work a lot together. You know, we talk very often throughout the week and, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm surrounded by a very good network and, and a structured, you know, support group. And, that's what I that's what I try to build for others. I mean, I look at what works and what doesn't and you know, I try to replicate that and adjust when when I can. And you know, some days are harder than others and some days are easier than others. It's just recovery isn't linear. It doesn't just move from good to bad. It goes up and down and sometimes you you fall back and then you just have to have a reason. You got to have a reason to keep going and and that's the that's the message, man, is like, you know, it's hard, but I've been doing a lot of shadow work, you know, and, and you know, Mary Beth has been instrumental in in helping me to find a newfound appreciation for myself. We all have a past of some type, but obviously not everyone has a past quite like yours or causes you to have this kind of, the same kind of reaction that you've had to some of the things that have happened from your past. And I don't want to separate what you've used, what you used to do from what your from your full humanity. So during the question and answer at the documentary screening, you told a story that really caught my attention. And I think this really humanizes an aspect of your life. Can you tell me about the situation about a year ago at your son's baseball tryouts and the follow up phone call from the coach? Oh man. Uh, yeah. So, uh, my son, when he was about seven, man, he got into playing baseball. Like it just, it, it stuck to him. He's, he became a natural at it. And, uh, we decided that, you know, it was time for him to go on to the, the next level of baseball and, and start to play competitively. Um, so we shopped around and, you know, went to a few tryouts and, uh, we got a call back from, uh, Coach Abel Gonzalez, who is uh, the the head coach of the Tennessee Fuel here in the the Athens, Cleveland, Chattanooga area where I live. And uh, he was like, hey, man, uh, you know, CJ showed a lot of, you know, promise and and potential. And uh, we like to invite you back for, you know, a team tryout instead of an individual one. And I was like, oh, this is awesome, man. Like, so so we go and, you know, he offers CJ a position on the team. You know, we, we were ecstatic, you know, CJ cried. I cried. We were just really happy, man. And, uh, he gave us the instructions, you know, when you're a part of a travel team like that, usually there's a a team app that they use to disseminate information. And so we download the app and we'll say like Monday, I, I, we, we got the app downloaded Monday evening. The first message that comes out is uh, welcome to the new roster of kids. And about an hour goes by and there's another message that pops in and it's from coach. And he goes, uh, Hey parents, some information has just come to my attention regarding a family that that's on this ball team. I need to, to have a meeting with all the parents, no kids. This is a sensitive topic. Uh, and I just, I need everybody to, to be available for this meeting on this date. When I tell you that my heart dropped because the only thing I could imagine is somehow or another that my story out of context has come up 
and they've told all of the bad and none of the the good that I've done, right? Like they only told a portion of it, and that this is gonna is gonna crush my son. Like he's gonna have to pay for for the things that I did in my past. And man, uh, I just like going through these cycles of like anxiety and fear and guilt and shame. And finally, my wife, she's like, hey, like everything you're doing right now doesn't change the fact that man, you, you need to call this man. So I sent him a text. And I was like, hey, coach, man, you got a second? And you know how, like, when somebody's, like, really upset with you or when they're, like, you get the one-word replies? Like, when I send my wife a message, I know she's mad because she'll just say, yeah, <laughs> no. And I'm like, all right. So I sent him, I was like, you got a second, coach. And uh, I get, yep. And I was like, okay. Mm. So I waited a second. I was like, okay, cool. Calling you now. So I, I call him and he goes, uh, and first thing out of his mouth when he answers, he goes, yeah, what's up, pal? And I was like, hey, look, I, I just got your message. He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, some some pretty crazy stuff I found out about. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about it over phone. I'll talk about it with the parents. And I was like, look, we got to talk. And he was like, oh, yeah? About what? And I was like, look, man, I, I got a past. And, uh, you know, I know I know a lot of people have past, but mine's pretty unique. And uh, it, it's pretty harmful. To, to a lot of people. So the first thing he, he, he says is, all right, I'm, I'm listening. And uh, so I go through and I tell him the whole story, like 45 minutes. There's tears involved. Like, and, you know, I just like, it was one of the, one of the few times since I started telling my story publicly that I got emotional about it. And every wow. now and then I'll find that audience that just for some reason, man, they just pull emotion out of me and, and I'll get, like very sentimentally attached to, to a certain part of the story. And uh, I think if you remember, I, I kind of got emotional at the, at the film screening uh, mm -hmm. when I was telling this story. And right. uh, so I go through the whole story, you know, I was like, and, but, and, and we pause and I was like, let me tell you what I do now. So then I started telling him about the work I do with, you know, pulling people out of hate groups, you know, working with people who are involved in gang affiliation and, and uh, extremist ideologies across the spectrum, uh, being a, a mental health professional and, and working with, with substance abuse. And he goes, all right. He goes, uh, I really want to thank you for, for, for calling and telling me that. Um, but I, I already knew that. <laughs> and I was like, what, what do you mean? After 45 minutes. <laughs> and uh, it turns out, like, Coach does a really deep background check on, like, not just the kids, because the kids are, like, 12, like, 11, 12 years old, man. And, you know, they don't have a background. You know, he knows a lot of the teachers at all the schools, so that's as much of a background check as he does. Hey, what school do you go to? Hey, this is Coach Abel, man. Uh, tell me about this kid, man. How's his schoolwork look? Is he a good kid? That's as much as he does, but... With parents, like, he runs a background check on you. Um, you know, he checks into the, the circuit, the circle of travel ball that's in the area. And, like, everybody knows everybody. So people talk. Uh, you know, there's a lot of gossip and rumor mill and, and scuttlebutt. And, uh, you know, everybody had really great things to say. And, and everybody that told him about my past, 
always followed up with the really good, the good things. And, uh, that was a weird experience, man. Like I, I spent my entire life not having any faith in humanity. Like I didn't trust anybody. Uh, everybody was just waiting for their chance to, to, to do harm or to take advantage. And to know that, that behind my back, the, 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 Things that I have accomplished have touched people in a way that I could have never imagined. And that people that had no reason or no invested interest in me were proud of me and, and proud to know me and proud to, to be able to say, yeah, I know that guy, man. Let me tell you about him. He's awesome. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, that was that was a big deal for me, man. Um, I, I really think that that. Up until that point, I was still kind of like really struggling, like white knuckle struggling, trying to, to believe that people are generally good. And, and I think that that was the turning point in my in my life where I actually started to believe that, hmm. you know, like, like people that had no reason. To, to, to take stock in, have faith in, or, or to believe in me, did. And, and if to, to even look at it on the flip side of that, people that had an invested interest to, to feel ill will towards me chose not to hmm. and chose okay. compassion and chose like that gift of, of forgiveness. And, you know, uh, me, and my, me and my friend Arno, the one who helped me, get in touch with Dr. Kelly in the film. We, we've had a lot of conversations. And one of the things, the, the themes of our conversations that kind of like run parallel are that one of the biggest things that turned our, our corner for us both is the kindness from people that we deserved it from the least. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. So that's that's a big deal. That's a that's a story that is is almost as near to my heart as the beats of it. That's the end of part one of my interview with former Klansman Chris Buckley. Please click on the next episode for the rest of this conversation.